let's look at, sorry, we looked at um, the one sonnet, Love That Doth Reign and Live Within My Thought, and compared it to Wyatt's translation of the same Petrarchan original, which Sue's um, read for us so beautiful, beautifully. Um, go to page 102. Um, there are basically, there are a couple of poems uh, that I want us to uh, get through, if none else. So the first one is the one called The Suit to Season, or The Suit Season. Um, and is the title, yes, so suit means what? Sweet. Um, those of you who remember the beginning of your Canterbury Tales um, will recall the first line, of course, when the Taprile with his shorta suta, when April with his sweet showers. So it's um, an older and common um, word for sweet, or our, our word sweet is a little bit of a Frenchified version of, um, of suta. So the suta season means the sweet season. Um, who wants to read it? Notice it's a sonnet before you do that. Um, it's a Petrarchan sonnet, which means it's going to divide how? <laughs> what is the structure? Yes. Okay, everyone remember that? Octave. Okay. Um, so it's going to divide into eight and six. And what happens between the eighth and the ninth line, the first eight lines and the last six in general in Petrarchan sonnets? Yes, the Voltaire turn. Um, something that's where we expect a turn to happen. The um, the um, it's what would what economists would now call an inflection point in the sonnet, and I find that's very helpful to use economic terminology to talk about poetry. Okay, war is peace, love is hate. <laughs> Someone want to read it? Yes, Emily. Okay, um, the suit, that's nice. Yeah. The suit season with garden blooms that springs, with green half clad the hill and eat the veil, the nightingale with feathers new shoes, the turtle to her makes half of the tail. Summer has come for every spray now sprayed, the heart hath hung his old head on the tail, the buck and break his winter coat he flings, the fishes float with new repaired scale. The adler all her slow away she slings. The swift swallow pursueth the fly small. The busy bee her honey now she wings. Winter is worn that was the flower's veil. And thus I see among the pleasant things, each care decays and yet my sorrow springs. Thank you. Um, so any first impressions? Second impressions, obviously, since you've already read it. Emily. The word like sorrow at the last end, I was like, oh, we are talking about that, sort of, because I just thought it was all about spring, and then he like, I don't know, that sort of brought me by surprise. Yeah, it, it's all just a cheerful catalog of things of spring, <laughs> until you get to the last half of the last line. Yeah, Gabriel. You find your turning point. Yeah. At the between the the uh, eighth and ninth. Yeah. It was, it was more at the. Um, yeah, with the and thus, that is there. You get you get the feeling of a summing up there, um, and so it yeah it does feel here as though he simply just rides right through 
um, the standard place of a turning point. Um, what else do you notice? First reading. Yeah. It doesn't seem to have a, a clear secondary meaning the way um, other poems might about like perhaps a lover. With this one, it's, it you know talking about spring and things renewing and, and, and everything like that. It, it it seems a bit more one note. Okay. Yeah. It seems and and it's the note of a bird. Um, yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of alliteration um, examples. Suit season, bud bloom, uh, hat, hill, uh, she sings, uh, turtle, tolt, two, tolt, tail. Mm -hmm. It's all through them. Yeah, so what's the effect of all that alliteration? Yeah. It gives it a lighter, more happy feel, like a sing-song almost. Yeah, and it's and it's everything is coming together. It's it's maybe sing-songy, but also a sense that everything is appearing at once. That it's almost as though the letters are appearing like buds in the spring. Um, it's that it's that way that life breaks out in the spring. It takes a long time to see that in Waltham, but eventually you will. Um, actually, if the weather's like this, you'll probably see it tomorrow. Um, but yeah, it's just it's um, it's everything breaking out in life. June is busting out all over. Um, any other first impressions? Early impressions? Yeah. It, it's very simple rhyming. It's just A, B, A, B, A, B, all the way uh, to the end where it's uh, A, A. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are only two rhymes in the poem. Did people notice that? So that goes with the question of when the octet and the sestet in general, when um, how they split, how they bifurcate. Um, again, in a typical Petrarchan sonnet, and we've now looked at several of them, the rhyme scheme of the octet will be A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A. And then with line nine, that will almost always be a C rhyme in a Petrarchan sonnet. Um, let's actually look at the Italian. Um, yeah, so if you look at, at 140, it's um, A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A, C, um, C, D, C, C, D, C, D, C, C, D, C, C, D, C, which is fairly common. Um, that is, you get the first eight lines divided into four sorry, divide into two quatrains that are linked because they have the same rhymes, A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A. And then the sestet divides into two tercets, that is the six lines divide into two three-line units that are frequently also symmetrical, C, D, E, C, D, E. Um, that is, uh, the rhymes go from one to the other. Um, so almost always a Petrarchan sonnet will have, as its ninth line, we will get a C rhyme. The first eight lines will only have two different rhymes, and then the ninth line will introduce a third, and the tenth line will introduce a fourth. Um, and sometimes you'll also get a fifth as well. Um, I'd say more times than not you'll get a fifth. So that any Petrarchan sonnet, this is probably true of Shakespearean sonnets too, but any Petrarchan sonnet, you can count on there being five different rhyme sounds in the sonnet. 
um, two different rhyme sounds in the first eight lines, and then three different rhyme sounds in the last six lines. And notice that that how interesting that is, because what it means is the longer stretch of the poem has a shorter um, number of rhymes, has a smaller number of rhymes, and the shorter stretch of the poem has a larger number of rhymes. That, in a sense, restores the balance that that f from long to shorter gets somewhat balanced by more different rhyme words in the shorter part of the poem, fewer different rhyme words in the longer part of the poem. It's a subliminal effect, but it's there. Um, you have to pay more attention to keeping track of where things are rhyming in the shorter part of the poem. So in a sense, the volta comes, something has changed, your attention becomes intensified to see what has changed, how the poem is changing direction. And with that intensification of attention, there's also um, either a correlate or simply an opportunity to get more rhymes um, packed into six lines than were packed much more loosely into the eight lines that came before. Um, just notice that. It's not, there's not an argument to be made here. It's a subliminal effect. Um, but it's one worth bringing to consciousness. So, but in this poem, the rhyme scheme is brings veil, sings tale. So it's already a little bit unusual for a Petrarchan sonnet. Not in any sense rare, but somewhat unusual to go A, B, A, B rather than A, B, B, A. Um, so brings veil, sings tale, springs pale, flings scale, slings, um, small would have been pronounced much more closely to smale at the time than it is now. Um, that's a much truer rhyme in the 16th century than it is now. Um, so let's just say, for the purpose of rhyme, sling, smale. It's still true in, um, in Scottish dialect, isn't it? Um, ah, it's a wee smale thing. No? Does that? I can't do it. Okay, that gang to glay. Um, you get it. Slings, smale, mings, bale, um, things, and then we're expecting ale or something, um, but instead we get springs. So it's only the last two lines that violate that alteration. A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B, A, A. So that draws you up. That draws you back. Um, so let's listen to it again. The suit season that bud and bloom forth brings with green hath clad the hill and eke the veil. The nightingale with feathers new she sings. The turtle to her make hath told her tale. Summer is come, for every spray now springs. The heart hath hung his old head on the pail. The buck in brake his winter coat he flings. The fishes float with new repaired scale. The adder all her sloth, away she slings, the swift swallow pursueth, or pursueth the fly's smell. The busy bee, her honey now she mings. Winter is worn, that was the flower's bale. And thus I see among these pleasant things, each care decays, and yet my sorrow springs. Um, so do you hear that a little bit more? Just the way everything is great? until the very last line. Um, what about the word springs? What do we think of um, that as the last rhyme? Barbara? It's a good use of it because it's all about spring, but it's also how 
and sorrow is going forth, I guess, or like, and kind of like in the spring, water gushing out, like a lily or something. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Yeah, Gabriel. Gabriel. Uh, uh, it's interesting that he uses it because it is something that you usually think of in a cheerful way. Like, uh-huh. it's used for spring because it's like, or because it's used for spring, there's a very happy connotation for it, like, very energetic connotation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for him to say that it's his sorrow that springs is almost, like, ironic, because he's like, yeah, you know, everything's great and peppy and cheerful, and so is my sorrow. Yeah. Like, you know? Yeah, yeah, good. Um, what about in a purely technical sense? That is, what do we think about forgetting any of the words that come up to it, just looking at the rhymed words. Um, some of you know that there is an 18th century game called um, Bourrimé, and the way that works is people are given a list of rhymes. It's, it's the 18th century version of Mad Libs. Um, there's a lot less to do, so the Mad Libs part would take a lot longer. People would be given the rhyme words of a poem, and only the rhyme words. So they'd be given a series, like if it were a sonnet, they'd be given a series of 14 words, just the rhymes in a sonnet that they didn't know. And what they were supposed to do was write their own sonnet with those rhyme words. Bourrimé means um, rhyming ends. Um, sometimes they were just random rhyme words, but sometimes they came from um, real, real sonnets. Um, so if someone gave you the bourrimé of this poem, um, just the rhyme words, and didn't ask you to write a sonnet, but asked you what you thought of that series of words as rhymes, um, would you have any objection to it? Define objection? Would you say there's something that's not quite right about this series of rhymes? Uh-huh. Knowing inherently it was supposed to be a sonnet? Yeah. Because I mean, if someone handed this to me and they're like, this makes a sonnet, I'd be like, does it really, though? Does it? <laughs> <laughs> no, but does it? <laughs> well, if you say so. Um, uh, John Malkovich would do a really great, does it really, though, under those, <laughs> under those circumstances. Yeah. Um, of the rhyme words, springs repeats twice, and yeah. the other ones repeat. Yeah. How many people notice that? That repetition of the word springs? Brings veil, sings tail, springs pale, flings scale, slings smale, mings veil, things springs. They're far enough away, it's line five and line 14, that um, you don't really notice it. Um, how did you notice it, Yo? I, I just, I don't know, noticed it. <laughs> I don't know. Well, the, did you notice it the first time you read it? Yeah. So the, even the first time you read it, you thought, wait. He already used that word. He already used that word. Um, did you feel that was cheating? Uh, a little bit. Yeah. Um, do oh, people? He goes out of the rhyme scheme for that last one. It was like not only is he cheating, but he's like cheating to break his own rhyme scheme. Uh huh. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Emily. Um, sort of what I said earlier, though, like the sorrow, like he's talking about something different. Like to me, it would, I feel like it'd be different if he were rhyming like spring and springs with both like his physical surroundings. But I think he's using the same word on purpose, like to relate his inner sorrow to, like, you know, whatever's going on around him. Okay, good. So um, essentially, what you're saying is that um, 
one of the ways, so we, t we talked earlier about the subtlety of the question, what counts as a rhyme and what doesn't. Um, we talked about that when we were talking about Wyatt. Um, and one of the ways, and it seems, it seems to be the case in modern English, and by modern English I really do mean from Skelton onwards, that we tend to hear, what poets have to, have to write to is um, what we tend to hear is right. Um, poets don't get to make the rules, even though in the 20th century they started really attacking the rules. But they don't get to make the rules. Um, the rules are in the ears and in the eyes of the hearer and listener. Um, if a poet says, you know, that from now on I declare, which actually in, in rap there was a moment like this. Um, where, do you know how word, like when you guys say word, and you mean that, by that you mean, I find myself in complete agreement with you and I wish to praise what you have just said. Um, but do you know how that, um, how word came to mean word like that? Does anyone? Um, so in early rap, the word word was um, like a blank tile in Scrabble. If you couldn't find a rhyme, you were always allowed to say word. Um, and word there stood for a rhyme. So that's a rule of early rap. Um, and so certain people who are not the best rhymers among the rap community um, would find themselves using word a lot, but they wanted to justify it, so they'd always say it with a certain kind of emphasis. And that eventually came to be how it creeped into word. Um, but um, generally, you can't do that. You can't just say, in my poem, um, orange and peanut butter rhyme. <laughs> and so when you read this poem, just notice that I've actually rhymed orange because the first two lines were, I went to Usedan and got an orange and on it I spread some nice peanut butter. <laughs> Perfect couplet. Um, you don't get to say that um, because even if you do say it, your hearers or readers won't feel it. And the whole point about a poem is to make them feel that something is falling into place, um, that even unexpectedly falling into place, but that something is falling into place. So what we talked about a little bit were um, things that do sound to readers or to hearers, do, do look to readers like they rhyme even if they may not. And, um, an example of that is the I versus E rhyme. Um, rhyming, for example, wind and behind, which is a standard rhyme. Um, it's standard not because some poet said, from now on these things rhyme, but because they're used so often in rhyming context that people just, um, just, just assimilate them to what counts as rhyming. Um, one thing that we moderns don't like is something that you will get a lot in French poetry still, and that um, you got in earlier English poetry, including in Chaucer, um, and that you also get in some Italian poetry, although it's rarer in Italian poetry, including in Dante. Um, and that's something called rime riche, or rich rhyme. And what rich rhyme is, is when you actually repeat the same word. Um, so again, to go to the Canterbury Tales, which um, I'm sure if you haven't finished memorizing the first 22 lines, you're working on it. Um, the last two lines of, of the introductory stanza of the Canterbury Tales is that all the pilgrims 
um, are wending their way to Canterbury, um, then Long and Folk to go on pilgrimages. They're wending their way to Canterbury. Um, the holy blissful martyr for Tiseka, um, that is, in order to seek the holy blissful martyr, that is Thomas Becket, um, who is holy and blissful and a martyr. Um, the holy blissful martyr for Tiseka, that him hath holpen, that helped them, that them has helped. One, that they were Seka, when they were sick. So Beckett, the martyr Beckett, has, has done miracles and has helped um, um, people who were sick, and he was a great man, which is why he was murdered and also why he um, was made a saint. And the last two lines of the, intro, of the proem, the introduction of the Canterbury Tale, is that the, the folk go to Canterbury from um, the holy blissful martyr for Tiseka that Hemeth Holpen won that they were Seka. And for Chaucer's audience, there's nothing that sounds wrong about rhyming Seka with Seka. For Chaucer's audience, um, that's a perfectly good rhyme. It's, it doesn't, it's no more surprising to them than rhyming um, um, low and bow. Um, their, their brains, their minds, their ears, just take it in as onset, resolution, which is always how rhyme works. There's an onset, there once was a man from Nantucket, and there's a resolution who kept all his toys in a bucket um, or something. Um, so that onset and resolution um, that's how rhyme works. That's what rhyme does for us. And the question is, what counts as a resolution? If the onset is orange, peanut butter doesn't count. Um, if the onset is um, um, immortal hand or eye, symmetry does count. But for us, it tends to be the case in modern English that if the onset is seca, then Seika doesn't count also as a resolution. Reem leash, this is the important thing about it though, is that the reason it works, the reason this is also sometimes called homophonic rhyme, the reason a homophone works in, in rhyming is because the meaning is always different. If you were to rhyme um, there with there, um, there's no there, there, and that's why they're not there. Um, that's the same there, so that you No, there. Why they're not there. No, you still ended on there. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. I, I couldn't get it quite the way I wanted to. Thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, I don't know. What's another homophone? It was, it was a matter of principle that took me to the principle. Um, so we wouldn't, allow, there's no way that we would accept that as a rhyme, even though those are two different words and they're spelt differently. Um, and, um, but for some linguistic cultures, for some ways that, for some languages or um, sub-languages, that is languages during a period of, of time, the fact that there are different meanings there mean that there's enough difference that we accept that as a rhyme. Rhyme is always similarity over difference. Um, usually the difference is um, the onset or the beginning, the beginning consonant of the rhymed words. 
um, so that um, ta town and brown rhyme. Um, but the difference is the T versus the BR. Um, and the reason we don't like sick and sick as rhyming is because there isn't that difference in initial consonant. Um, sick and thick, great. Sick and sick, no. Um, and you could do that in modern poetry. You could have, um, I was feeling really sick um, when rabies I got because on me his dog, he did sick. I don't know. Um, I guess I'm not going to have a career as an improviser. Um, but they're spelled differently, S-I-C versus S-I-C-K. Some cultures would accept that as rhyming. We don't. And um, nevertheless, if in cultures that accept homophonic rhyming, they accept it because the words mean different things. And so that's a long way of noticing that for every spray now springs and yet my sorrow springs, um, in order to work perfectly, there has to be some difference in meaning. Some difference in meaning. Um, just one other example of difference in meaning. It's generally the case that in most good rhyming poems in England, what you'll find is the same parts of speech usually don't rhyme. Um, what poets will, will try to do, um, again, unconsciously, as a matter of ear or skill, is rhyme nouns with verbs or adjectives, but not rhyme nouns with nouns or verbs with verbs. Um, that doesn't give you enough difference if you rhyme a noun with a noun or a verb with a verb. Um, so the interplay of similarity and difference, that's what rhyming is about. And it's therefore a resource that a poet can use. We're partly going into so much detail about poetic language because, because it's being invented by these guys. It's being invented. Our modern po poetic language and idiom is being invented by Skelton and Wyatt and Surrey and Sidney and Spencer. After them, um, we're just looking at people writing in an already established poetic, poetic idiom, but they're the ones inventing it. Well, when did slant rhyme come into mind? Well, slant rhyme of the sort that, that Dickinson uses yeah. or the sort that Auden uses, um, that's much later. Um, what happens... So it was just unacceptable before <coughs> that? Or... Yeah. Um, yeah, if, I mean, people did it, and, you know, it's, you have it in Mother Goose, that is, it's something, the more, the more and the louder the music, the more you can get away with it. Um, but in written poetry, in poetry that people read silently or read alone or could read silently and alone, um, slant rhyme was, was usually considered a defect. Um, but there's, there's lots of argument about, about how pure rhymes have to be. Um, there are very pure rhymers, of whom Pope is probably the purest in um, English poetry. And pure rhyming is really, really useful for, for people doing linguistic history. Because if Pope rhymes two words, that means they were pronounced exactly the same way in the early 18th century. So Pope, for example, rhymes um, line and join. And what we know from the fact that he rhymes line and join is, um, well, we don't know it only from this fact, but we know that they sounded exactly the same, that they were perfect rhymes. We know further that line was pronounced loin. It was sort of a cockney pronunciation. Um, so Pope said, um, and ten low words oft creep in one dull loin, while expletives their feeble aid do join. 
um, that ev even that isn't isn't right. Um, but there are other poets who are not so pure in their rhyming. But what counts as rhyming changes over time. And slant rhyme was was hugely experimental. Consonantial rhyme, which is something that Rupert Brooke uh, really liked doing, was um, changed everything. Um, but it took a while for people to to acquire the taste for it. Yeah. Um, along with these developments of rhyme, then. How, what were the standards of meter, or the developments of, were they, um, was it as much of a focus? Or? Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised and delighted that you want to know. Um, <laughs> I'm seeing it sort of as uh, the comedy and melody of this vertical portion and horizontal, but I yeah. don't quite, what is the... So part, so um, Part of the history of English meter, the history of English meter is, is um, a really complicated subject. Um, but there is a basic um, settlement about what we now regard as, as um, standard iambic pentameter, um, the iambic pentameter that Shakespeare writes, which people generally think of as having been um, established by Marlowe. Um, that Marlowe, who is Shakespeare's exact contemporary, except that he died at age 29, um, was a person who wrote in the kind of iambic pentameter that would then be the standard iambic pentameter for the next, um, up, up until the 20th century. Um, and part of the question in standard iambic pentameter is um, a question of pronunciation. Chaucer wrote, it turns out, in iambic pentameter, but no one in Wyatt's day knew that he wrote in iambic pentameter. Um, they thought his meter was defective because they didn't know how he pronounced his words. Um, even to the extent that people were translating Chaucer um, into modern English as early as the 18th century. Dryden translated a lot of Chaucer into 18th century English and said, we have to do this because Chaucer was a genius, but a very irregular genius. It turns out he wasn't irregular. It's just people didn't know how to pronounce his writing. But the result was because they were misreading Chaucer, people like Wyatt found a way, they knew he was great, and they found a way of developing a taste for Chaucer's roughness, or what they thought was his roughness. So when I say one that's a prelude with the shorter sort of the drucht of Brachet Perse to the Rota, you can hear that that's basically a sing-songy iambic pentameter. Um, Wyatt read that as one that April with his shores sort the drucht of March hath persed to the rot. And after reading a whole lot of, of Chaucer, he developed a real taste for the roughness of that language. Um, roughness which emphasized words that were emphasized anyhow because those were the, those were the ones whose pronunciation was always solid. Um, and de-emphasized more than Chaucer ever did the less important syllables, the um, trailing vowels in words. Um, so that Wyatt reading Chaucer was hearing something that wasn't there in Chaucer, hearing a rougher version of Chaucer than what Chaucer wrote, and yet true to what Chaucer wrote because the, the, the emphasized syllables stayed emphasized and maybe even had their emphasis enhanced, sort of like, so Wyatt's Chaucer, Wyatt's ear for Chaucer was like turning the contrast 
um, higher, keying the contrast higher than Chaucer could key it. And then Wyatt wrote with that more intensified contrast. He heard it, and he liked it, and he liked the effect, and he wrote for that effect. Um, but then what happened was there's a natural, English is naturally an iambic language. Um, it's, um, some of you know this. How many of you know what I'm about to say? Yeah. Uh, do you want to say it? A hamburger and a Diet Coke? Not that one, no. Um, do you know how much I hate the stupid planet? Yeah, except not stupid. <laughs> yeah, so in Total, other people know this, in Total Recall, have you seen it? Um, that's good. It's, it's, a, it's a classic. It's an oldie, but a classic. In Total Recall, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger is um, pursuing his dream on Mars, and Sharon Stone, who's married to him, um, but is actually a double agent and not really married to him. He just has a memory implant, so he thinks she is. Um, has to hunt him down and stop him from doing what he's attempting to do as he's about to blunder onto the secret of um, the exploitation of, of um, the solar system by the 1%. And um, so she chases him down onto Mars, and he's rendered helpless. His hands are tied behind his back. And she has a moment with him before he's about to be um, bundled into a spaceship and brought back to Earth, where she can just let all her anger at him out. And so she puts her arms together and starts wailing on him. And as she does, she says, on the stressed syllable of the line she then utters, she says, you know how much I hate this fucking planet. Um, and the screenwriters weren't thinking it's time for a little iambic pentameter. Um, but the line is um, iambic pentameter in the, in the wild. It's a perfect iambic pentameter line. Um, if Now you'll never forget, I hope, um, even a few substitute words. Um, but it's a perfect iambic pentameter line. Um, unstressed, stressed. You know how much I hate this fucking planet. Um, and for an added Philip, it's got what's called a feminine ending, um, which is to say that after the last stress syllable, plan, there's an unstressed kind of grace note, an 11th syllable, an unstressed kind of grace note, um, which is um, simply called a feminine ending in iambic pentameter. Um, so if she hated plants and said, you know how much I hate this lousy plant, that would be what's called a masculine ending. Um, but because what she hates is, is the planet, Mars, it's got a feminine ending. Um, that's a, those are technical distinctions. Um, so what you will find is that whenever people speak with a certain passionate intensity, um, their language will sort of tighten into iambic pentameter. Um, there'll be a lot of stresses in what they say, but those stresses will constantly alternate with unstressed syllables. So iambic pentameter is, an, and, and iambic lines are probably the plurality, I mean, excuse me, pentameter lines are probably the plurality of, of sentence lengths in England, in, 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 excuse me, in, in spoken English. Um, when people are speaking, 10 syllables is more or less what you can get out in a single breath, and therefore more or less what you time a sentence to be, or a phrase, or something between pauses. Um, and when you're passionate, the timing becomes better, and the alternation of stress and unstress becomes better. So iambic pentameter, you'll find a lot of it. 
um, if you listen for it. Most people have better things to do with their lives than listen to the people around them speaking iambic pentameter. But it's something that you'll hear a lot. And, um, and therefore, it's a natural rhythm for English, which Chaucer used and which people like Marlowe, but also Surrey, rediscovered as a really good natural um, rhythm for English. But Wyatt, and um, um, especially, but some, some people earlier than Surrey, were still acquiring and um, sort of forcing themselves to um, pleasure in the roughness that they mistakenly thought was in Chaucer. Um, it's the same kind of, they did the same kind of work that people nowadays will do to acquire a taste for bebop. Um, that is, if you like bebop, no one likes bebop the first time they hear it. Um, but then if you decide you're going to like it, you'll eventually love it. Um, you'll eventually be amazed by how wonderful it is. But it takes effort. Um, it's not a natural or not a naturally um, appealing um, simple musical idiom. Um, but if you do the work, you'll get to love it, and it's great. Um, so, so that's basically what Wyatt did with what he thought Chaucer sounded like, and it was great. So that's the very short answer, believe it or not. Um, uh, yeah? That poem that we were looking at. The Suit Season. Yeah. It, uh, he could have ended it, and yet my sorrows sail. Yeah. Yeah. You know, obviated a lot of discussion. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the fact that he doesn't have at least a C rhyme for the final couplet is what surprised me in the first place. I mean, the fact that he goes back to A for what traditionally in sonnets is supposed to be the big climactic moment is... I don't want to say it's lame, but um, it's just it it only further emphasizes this whole feeling of sameness that you get by having only the A B the whole way through. Yeah. So it so you think it emphasizes it when you have A A at the end? I think by the time you get there, I mean when I said it's one note, I feel like part of the thing that I was feeling but not realizing was the fact that the fact that there are only two rhymes built in really drives that home. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it, it does drive it home. Um, and I guess, how many people like the sonnet, or like the ending of it? Um, defend it. Someone. One of you with your hands up. Defend it. Gabriel. Um, um, when I look at it, when I look at the, the, the last couplet, I like to think of it not as an AA rhyme, but as the CC rhyme. Mm -hmm. It's a very different form. It's not. It's a, it has a different theme. Has a different meaning. And the way that you, if you try to relate it to this as a poem, it's just it's out there. It's not part of it. Uh -huh. And it just makes you think that this is the ending. This is the difference. It's not part of the A B A B. It's A A, but it's not A A. It's more C C. Okay. I, yeah, that sounds right to me. That is that. But you only realize it's CC at the very end. Like, I had to read this poem a couple times before I even got the ending. I'm like, it doesn't quite fit. It's just off. And the fact that it's off makes you realize it's not part of the poem. It's not part of the rhyming scheme before it. Yeah. OK, good. Yeah, were, were you going to say something? No. Um, anyone else want to defend it? What makes this good? Yeah. Um, 
Lorelai. Yes. Because it's an incredibly different meaning for the same like general phrase. Uh-huh. The first one is specifically referring to summer and like the end of springtime. Summer has come for every spring as springs. Uh-huh. Whereas this, which is like kind of the beginning of the end almost, but at the same time, it's it's the highlight, it's the main period, as opposed to the end, where each care is decaying, like perhaps the start of fall and the end of summer, as opposed to the beginning of summer where he's starting that one. Uh-huh. So that entire section in between explains <coughs> what happens in between those periods. And you could use each of those lines in between as like a metaphor for how he's feeling almost. Mm-hmm. And so explaining it that way definitely emphasizes the way he's feeling and how he got there. Okay, so say more about that. G give me some examples of how you'd use it as a metaphor. Okay, the adder, all her sloth, away she uh, slings, like getting rid of baggage, essentially. Uh-huh, okay, and good. Starting fresh with, like, a new life, a new relationship or something. And, I mean, the buck, he's getting rid of his winter coat as well. The fishes are getting new scales. Yeah. Okay, so it's, it's all these things are getting rid of, of their old baggage. Um... And he is too, but it doesn't work? Or is it that he can't? Kind of a combination of both, I think. Because, I mean, he's very emotional about everything throughout that season. You know, he, he cares about everything, but as each care decays, he gets more and more upset about it. So it's, it's kind of a rebirth from, like, happiness to sorrow. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I find that each care decays is by far the most poignant part of this line because decay is an inherently unpleasant word. When you're saying you're each care decays, it's like, you know, they're evaporating into the air. It's supposed to be a good feeling. But by saying each care decays, it's like you want to hold on to your pathos. And yeah, so nice. I would have inherently thought that, you know, I would say that the final line should have been something like, my sorrow springs, yet each care should should decay, and the previous line would have been something that rhymes with decay. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, explain that again? Why is that the okay. end with decay? If, if the, the 13th line had, instead of being, and thus I see amongst these pleasant things, been uh, something like, these pleasant things will wander on their ways, uh, for example, um, and then the last line had been, my sour springs, yet each care should decay, it would further emphasize what I personally, in a very subjective way, find the most poignant part of this final turn, and would have made it a more uh, standard sort of assignment. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, yeah. Um, I, get, like, I can sort of see where you're going with that. I think for me, the turn came with winter because of just the way a lot of it started. Like, it's the, and like, there's a whip, but it's the, the, and then summer, and then the, 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 the. Uh -huh. So as soon as I get winter, I immediately juxtapose that with summer just because nice. there are all the nice. the's in the middle. And I'm like, okay, something's coming. It's probably going to be bad because things die in winter. And then it ends with springs, which is also the last word where the summer was. Uh -huh. So for me, it provides a kind of symmetry almost with the juxtaposition of winter to summer. And then with springs, sort of like in one, a summer spring. But I think of a fount of sorrow and then sorrow springing. And it just works for me. Okay, good. And works for you as a sad poem? Yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah. George. To me, the sorrow springs from the fact that he knows this is all cyclical. 
and all the things that are really nice now are going to go the other way you know, before they come back again. Uh-huh. Okay, so he, he, he knows that, that, um, that it's naive to think that winter is over for good? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Lauren? Okay, I'm trying to untangle it here. With the last two rides being um, of the same as the rest in terms of the spring fling um, and the ING, it's on, it makes him, because this is all about him now, um, it narrows in on him and puts him on the same frequency of rhyme as nature. Uh, so in that sense, he's kind of bound with nature and of the same uh, quality. But at the same time, um, it's, um, as was said before, I think by Lorelai, it's that very um, different shade of meaning of, of sorrow springs. Um, so it's on the same frequency of nature, yet completely <coughs> um, uh, has a very different relationship to what else is going on in the poem. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that difference is um, the same, really, deeply, the same difference that you get in They Flee From Me. Um, that is that, look, here are all these wild things, to quote Morris Sendak, um, here are all these wild things um, busily ranging with a continual change and um, using newfangledness and um, having um, all this uh, ebullience or this elan of life. Um, and then there's me. And sorry does the and then there's me part. Um, really, that's just compressed into those last three words. Uh, well five words if you start it with the and, and yet my sorrow springs. That is, what you're getting is a catalog, um, and an amazing catalog of the things of spring. Until the last line and a half, um, you basically think that this is a joyous poem. Um, look, it's spring, it's spring, the bird is on the wing. Um, everything is wonderful. It's, uh, you know, the E. Cummings poem, right? In just spring. No, it's a really wonderful grade school poem. In just spring, when um, the birds sing, the little lame balloon man whistles far and wee, and it's spring. Yeah. Um, sorry? E. Cummings. E. Cummings, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Often celebrations of spring are celebrations that are catalogs. It's like, it's spring, look at all these wonderful things that are happening because um, it's spring. And you'll just get over and over this idea that, that, that it's spring everywhere and God isn't that amazing and it's just wonderful and let's celebrate the end. Um, not let's celebrate the end, let's celebrate <laughs> the end. Um, and that's what this poem looks like until there's that sudden turn at the very end. Yeah. Um. The reference to the heart, what, what is that? Um, do people know? The heart hath hung his old head on the pale. What, what does that mean? Um, a heart is like a deer of some sort, and they get antlers, and they kind of like fall off. Yeah. In the spring. In the spring, and they grow new ones in the wintertime, or in, towards like autumn when they have to start fighting over mates again. So heart and buck are paired. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
question about the winter line because maybe I'm misinterpreting it. I thought that was negative. Winter is warm. That was the flowers thing. It uh, so it's um, what it means is winter is is worn away. Okay. Uh, so, so winter that was so baleful for the flowers because because it piled snow on top of them back in those pre-global warming days, um, so that the flowers were all destroyed. Winter itself is worn away. There's no more winter. Um, words like worn and decays, I think people are right to see that, that Sari is kind of hinting at um, a negative undertone there, or at least a melancholy undertone. Um, but the manifest meaning of the line is winter is worn away, thank goodness, because winter was so bad for the flowers. Um, care has decayed, so there's no more care anymore. Um, and then you get to that really breathtaking and yet. Um, there's half a line left for this poem to do something other than celebrate spring, and then it does, and it does it in the simplest words imaginable. And I think it's really daring to, I mean, I think one of the ways that works that we now don't quite hear because we're not used to Petrarchan sonnets, but one of the ways it works is the way it rides right through what should be the turn. Um, that is, what we may think is coming as we're reading the octet is, okay, so the suit season that bud and bloom forth brings with green hath clad the hill and eke the vale. The nightingale with feathers new she sings, the turtle to her make hath told her tale. Summer has come for every spray now springs. The heart hath hung his old head on the pale. The buck in break his winter coat he flings. The fishes float with new repaired scale. But I, who am in populous city pent and may not go where once I used to roam, um, can only sit and sing my drear lament and realize I never shall go home. The spring I love, may others love it still, but here I sit and cannot have my will. That's actually really good improvising. Um, <laughs> and that was improvised. Um, Thank you. That was <laughs> yes. Um, footnote there. Important. Um, okay, uh, but we don't get that. What we get instead is we think, uh oh, what's going to come in the sestet? Oh look, it's still all happy. That's really great. Um, and then it isn't. And um, and I think the surprise is increased precisely by that compression of room for surprise. Yeah. Well, when we do enter the cest that you have the introduction of the adder, which is the first dangerous animal so far. Um, I think people would find bucks dangerous. Um, it, 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 it's not nice, but um, just, to, just to make sure we understand every line, um, eek, you remember, means also. The green, with green hath clad the hill and eek the vale. That is, not only is the hill covered with grass, <coughs> but so is the vale. The nightingale with feathers new, she sings. Um, that's grammatically standard in the 16th century. That is that you name a subject and then you use a pronoun as the um, closer subject to the verb. Um, you probably wouldn't find it so much in prose, but you will still find it in prose um, also. So the nightingale with feathers new, she, the nightingale, sings. 
Um, the turtle to her maketh told her tale. Do people know what the turtle is there? It's not a turtle. It's a dove. Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard. This is one of the things that is most spoiled by the change of the meaning of the word turtle to tortoise. Um, turtle came to mean tortoise um, in the late 17th century. Um, and it had to do with um, Portuguese um, colonizers in, um, I think it was in Java or in Indonesia, who misheard the word tortoise, which was more or less what um, the um, indigenous word for what we call tortoises and turtles um, were. And they heard it as turtle, which was a word they knew, which just meant bird. It just meant dove. Um, so for Shakespeare, for Surrey, for um, people until the end of the 17th century, um, there was nothing they had to repress to think of turtle as meaning a bird. It wasn't, oh yeah, bird. It was like, yeah, turtle, bird, of course. What else could it mean? Um, so we can't possibly recover that, um, which is unfortunate. Um, but so what, this, what that means is you know, the dove has told her tale to her mate, um, has been singing to her mate. Um, and it's just very simply dove. Um, summers come for every spray now springs. These are sprays of plants, and they're just, they're just springing up all over. The heart, um, as Gabriel says, hath hung his old head on the pail. Um, and that means has left his antlers. They've come off, and he's left them on um, some boundary growth. A pale there um, means something like hedge. Um, the buck in break his winter coat he flings, um, has, has given up all his, has lost all his hair. Um, and you can see all the hair of the buck just clinging to, to bushes and brambles. Um, the fishes float with new repaired scale. Whether that's true, who knows, as a matter of natural history. Um, the adder, all her slough away she slings, that is the snake is sloughing its skin, because it's spring, everything is new. The swift swallow pursueth the flies small, um, swallows eating flies, um, and the flies are small, that is, they're um, the flies of spring or early summer. The busy bee, her honey now she mings, the bee is going, mings means remembers, and the bee remembers that it's time to gather honey and goes flying around the gardens. Winter is worn, that was a flower's bale that was so baleful for the flowers. And thus I see, and that's where we first realize this is a first person poem, is that's another reason maybe to think of this um, as a CC rhyme, at least conceptually, that we only find out this is a first person poem with two lines left to go. Um, up until then, it could just be um, a cheery poem about what springtime is like. But now we have the poet, and the I appears in the poem precisely as a separation from the world that he sees. And thus, I see. I see all this. It's all around me, but I'm not part of it. And thus, I see among these pleasant things each care decays. And yet my sorrow springs. So that coming in of the eye is maybe the first warning of what's about to happen in those last five words. Um, OK, let's go a page forward 
to the great poem, Oh Happy Dames. Why are you laughing? Good. Do you know why? Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> um, someone want to read that? Are you volunteering, Emily? You... Um, I'm going to volunteer someone. Yeah, yeah. Oh, happy dames that may embrace the fruit of your delight, help to bewail the woeful case, and eke the heavy plight of me that wanted to rejoice the fortune of my pleasant choice. Good ladies, help to fill my morning voice. And shift, praise with remembrance of thoughts and pleasures past. He sails at half in governance, my life while it will last. With scalding sighs for lack of gale, furthering his hope that is his sail, toward me the sweet port of his avail. Alas, how often dreams I see those eyes that were my food, which sometimes so delighted me that yet they do me good. Wherewith I wake with his return, his absent flame did make me burn, but when I find the lack, Lord, how I mourn. When other lovers in arms across rejoice their chief delight, drowned in tears to mourn my loss, I stand the bitter night in my window where I may see before the winds how the clouds flee. Lo, what a mariner love hath made me. And in green waves from the salt flood doth rise by rage of wind, a thousand fancies in that mood assail my restless mind. Alas, how drencheth my sweet foe that with the spoil of my heart did go and left me, but alas, why did he so? And when the seas wax calm again to chase throw me annoy, my doubtful hope doth cause me plain, so dread cuts off my joy. Thus is my wealth mingled with woe, and of each thought a doubt doth grow. Now he comes. Will he come? Alas, no, no. Thank you. Um, so what's this about? Yeah. Um, could be, yeah. Um, she's got other things on her plate. Um, <coughs> but yeah, structurally, Penelope, why? It's about a woman who longs for her husband or lover who is away at sea. Yeah. So the first thing to notice is that the speaker is female. And um, that's also pretty rad. Uh, sorry. Um, especially since, since that isn't announced. Um, you only become aware of that gradually. Did everyone become aware of it as you were reading it? Um, and her lover or her husband is away at sea, and she's full of anxiety about that. So who is she addressing? Who are the happy dames? Her ladies in waiting. Yeah, or her friends. Um, those around her, and why are they happy? Lovers are with them. Yeah, so they're the ones who can embrace the fruit of their delight. Um, that is, those they want to embrace are right there. They have, they have um, them available to them. Um, so, oh, you happy ones, help me bewail my woeful case and eke the heavy plight of me that wanted to rejoice the fortune of my pleasant choice. What does wanted mean there? Used to. Yeah, that it, that it used to be um, my custom to rejoice the fortune of my pleasant choice. Um, that's how things used to be. Um, things were wont to be like that, but now they are no more. Um, so I the heavy plight of me that wanted to rejoice the fortune of my pleasant choice, good ladies help to fill my morning 
voice. So come sing with me about um, how sad I am. Help me um, bewail the situation. Um, that's a that's a really interesting thing to to say in a poem or to know in a poem. Let's let's say to know in a poem that um, you want help in mourning. You want help in being sad. That um, the reason to express your sorrow is that others will hear it and share it, and that you will hear them sharing it with you. And then we get, in the second stanza, we get um, the situation described. In ship, freight with remembrance of thoughts and pleasures past, he sails. Who he? He that hath in governance my life while it will last. With scalding sighs for lack of gale, furthering his hope that is his sail toward me, the sweet port of his avail. What's happening metaphorically there? Gabriel, did you, what did you want to say? I wanted to talk about the metaphor. Okay, well, we can um, get. I was going to mention the similarity between this and Petrarch's 189 or My Galley. Yeah. It's just it's the same person that they're talking about, and it's also the same first line, uh -huh. essentially. Instead of or the exact opposite first line, which makes it the same first. The last, like the last word is different. Yeah. Yeah, so My Galley charged with what? Anyone remember? Yeah, my galley charged with forgetfulness. Um, here we have in ship freight with remembrance. Um, I think it's almost certain that Sari is thinking of Wyatt's translation here. That is that it's it's um, that there's an echo or an allusion to Wyatt there. So yeah, good call. Yeah. But here the line makes sense before we're talking about how the uh, forgetfulness is obscure. Uh -huh. so why, why do you think that he changed the, instead of making a direct reference, he changed it to the opposite? So what he's, yeah. Um, because it's become a concept. Uh, the ship is the husband and the port is the wife and is the narrator. So his, the ship's, that is forgetfulness, is in this case not forgetfulness, it's remembrance. So it's his, his longing for her. Because it's the opposite emotion, it's, it's inherently... Uh, yeah, so in reality, the ship is probably freight with, um, with, with fabrics that, um, that, the we that the weavers have woven um, or something like that. But she's thinking of him on board ship, and she is thinking of him and imagining him being in this dangerous situation and wanting to be back home with her. And so... Then we get this conceit or extended metaphor in which the freight of the ship is his remembrance of her. He's remembering her. He's on ship, and everywhere the ship is, is freighted with his memory of her, um, remembrance of thoughts and pleasures past. Um, in that ship he sails that hath in governance my life while it will last. What does that mean? Hath in governance my life while it, while it will last? Not that hard. Yeah. He's her husband? Yeah. Um, and uh, what does the word, so this is, this is harder. What does the word governance mean there? He owns control. Control more than own. 
Um, does anyone know what um, the root meaning of the word govern is? Or what a governor is? Well, we talk about government, but what it, what it actually means, govern and cybernetic have the same root. And what they actually mean is helmsman. Um, the Kubernetes is the person who steers the ship. Um, <clears throat> the governor, governor is the Latin um, for what Kubernetes or cyber, cybernetic is the Greek. Um, that's the Latin equivalent of the Greek word. Um, like pho like um, photos and lum um, uh, lumos um, for light. Um, so to have her life in governance actually fits in with the extended metaphor, um, or at least with the um, set of um, metaphors drawn from sailing in that stanza. So he's in this ship, freight with remembrance, um, bicycling across the abyss of indiscretion. Um, he's in the ship, freight with remembrance um, of thoughts and pleasures past. He's sailing in that ship, and what he himself is the, um, the helmsman for is her life. It doesn't quite mean that he's the helmsman on, the, on that ship, um, but in a sense, it does, um, because as she thinks of him on the ship, she thinks she makes a metaphor of the very thing that she's um, thinking about, which is how far away he is. He's away on this ship, and what to what can that be compared? That can be compared to a person who is away on a ship that's mm -hmm. filled with remembrance, and um, he's steering the ship. To what can that be compared? to the way that he steers my life when he's even, and why I miss him so much when he's away from me. So it's a metaphor which kind of short circuits a little bit, but that's its power. Um, that the very thing he is becomes a good representation, the very, the very situation becomes a good metaphorical representation of itself. Yeah? I'm going to say the line, like, he sails with half in governance, and then, like, the next line is my, my life while it will last, because I think the line by itself, the first one, creates a, like an image of him um, at sale, like beyond something that's controlled. It doesn't put him in the position of governing her. But then right. the next line, you're like reminded of the metaphor that she's talking about. Okay, good. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, again, the line ending, the, the rhyme and the enjambment, um, gives you that little mini turn from, from uh, line 10 to line 11. And then the metaphor um, is extended with scalding sighs for lack of gale. So what's the wind that is um, pushing this ship? His sighs. His sighs. <laughs> <sighs> um, there's no wind. The ship, the ship isn't coming home. One reason he's so far away is that it seems they're caught without, sort of like the ancient mariner, um, they're caught without the wind that would, that would bring him home faster. Lack of gale is a bad thing. Um, she wants there to be some wind so that he will um, come home all the faster. He sighs because there is no wind, and his sighs then become metaphorically um, the only wind that there is. With scolding sighs for lack of gale, furthering his hope, that is his sail. So he sighs in order to further his hope, but his hope metaphorically is the sail. Now the metaphor is starting to seem a little far-fetched. 
Um, but the point is to try to get it all together. Um, furthering his hope toward me, the sweet port of his avail. Um, so finally he'll get home to port. And there, there's a, there's a sexual suggestion. That is, that um, it's something that Emily Dickinson um, does similarly in her great poem, Wild Nights, um, uh, which ends, Futile the winds to a heart import, done with the compass, done with the chart, rowing in Eden, ah, the sea, might I but moor tonight in thee. And even though um, the poet is female, you should probably imagine a male speaker. Um, Dickinson um, often wrote, partly out of some thought of publication, um, mm -hmm. of anonymous publication. She often wrote as though her speaker were male. She has poems where she talks about when I was a boy. Um, and, but, but yeah, might I but more tonight in thee um, is sexual, is clearly sexual in Dickinson. There's probably a hint of that here. Um, I'm your port, you should come sail into me. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know, that was like my first thought reading this is just like how interesting it is that it's supposed to be written from the point of view of a woman, but it's clearly a man, like, just also from the awareness of what he's doing. Like, I think if it was actually a female, she would focus more on, um, you know, the female perspective of waiting for him, but it's very much like, this is what he's doing, and how I'm an object of like, yeah, his, <laughs> of his desire. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but what about the what about the next two stanzas? Alas, how often dreams I see those eyes that were my food, which sometime so delighted me, that yet they do me good, wherewith I wake with his return, whose absent flame did make me burn, but when I find the lack, Lord, how I mourn. So that's a little bit compressed, but um, what's really important about the about line um, 19, wherewith I wake with his return, is what she's saying is she dreams of him so often, um, and there he is, and she's so happy that she wakes up to greet him. He appears in her dream, and his appearance in her dream makes her so happy that she wakes up to greet him. And what does she find? The lack. So she dreams that he's there. She wakes to try to find a truth, and then it turns out not to be true. And then here are these other lovers. When other lovers in arms across rejoice their chief delight, drowned in tears to mourn my loss, I stand the bitter night, that is the whole bitter night, in my window where I may see before the winds how the clouds flee. Um, so other lovers are lying in bed with each other, their arms across each other in embrace and rejoicing in their chief delight. But while that's happening all night long, I'm drowned in tears and mourning my loss. I stand all night in my window to look at, to look how the clouds flee before the wind. And then the most famous line of the poem, um, and really just a fantastically great line. What she's saying is, so I am weather-wise the way a sailor is. They're all in bed with each other um, because they don't have to pay any attention to the weather. They're all snug and happy, and the outside world doesn't matter. But I just look 
at the weather. Of course, I look at it because I'm worried about what's happening to him. Um, I don't know how strong a concept um, they had, but certainly she doesn't have that strong a concept of the idea of weather being different um, in, in geographically separate places at a particular time. This is a kind of natural view of weather. It's um, that the weather is all the same. Um, so, and then the line, lo, what a mariner love hath made me. Um, love made me into a sailor. That's what love did. Lo, what a mariner love hath made me. That's one of the great out-of-context lines. You know how some lines out of context is just a line of poetry which is completely great and you want to read that poem. Um, and this is one of those, one of the greatest of those out of context lines. Lo, what a mariner love hath made me. Um, but even in context it's pretty good um, because the context isn't sorry. The context is this woman of whom we know nothing except that love made her a mariner in the ways she describes. But that's what love did to her. Lo, what a mariner love hath made me. And then more about the weather. And in green waves when the salt flood doth rise by rage of wind, a thousand fancies in that mood assail my restless mind. Did people notice that rhyme or non-rhyme? Wind and mind? Or are you starting to just say, yeah, wind, mind, they rhyme. Yeah. Yeah. They Sorry? They the same? Um, probably when Sorry wrote it. but they yeah, flood mood were definitely pronounced the same. Um, but wind and mind, again, if, if you read a lot of pre-20th century poetry, um, you'll stop noticing that, <laughs> that they don't rhyme. Um, you know Dunn's poem, Go and Catch a Falling Star? Anyone know it? Go and Catch, isn't that, you've heard the phrase though, right? Catch a Falling Star? All right, it's a poem we'll do. It's called Song. Um, Go and Catch a Falling Star. Get with child a mandrake root. Tell oh, me yeah. okay. where all past years are or who cleft the devil's foot. Teach me to hear mermaids singing or to keep off envy's stinging and find what wind serves to advance an honest mind. So there again you get the same wind, mind, rhyme. Um, find um, wind, mind. Those so a thousand fancies um, in that mood assail my restless mind. Alas, now drencheth my sweet foe. Why foe? Why is she calling him her sweet foe? Yeah. Because she can't stop thinking about him when she wants to. Yeah. My foe that with the spoil of my heart did go. He took away my wealth and riches. He seized them and absconded with them and left me. But alas, why did he so? So when it's stormy, she gets all worried and she sees him drowned and she worries about that. And when the seas wax calm again to chase from me annoy, my doubtful hope doth cause me plain, so dread cuts off my joy. So she's hopeful but fearful even in her hope. It's doubtful there means fearful. Um, unconfident hope. So my doubtful hope doth cause me plain. So she complains um, or it causes, it causes her sorrow because 
she's worried that she's not worried enough. And when the seas wax calm again to chase from me annoy, my doubtful hope doth cause me plain, so dread cuts off my joy. Thus is my wealth, that is even the good weather, mingled with woe, and of each thought a doubt doth grow. Remember Wyatt um, and every thought, what is it, and every thought, um, it's um, in, um, oh, and every or a thought in readiness in um, my galley charged with forgetfulness. So I think he's thinking of that also. And every oar is a thought in readiness. That is, the oar that is, that is sailing my ship is the thought that I'm ready to have of her. And of each thought a doubt doth grow. And here's the thought and the doubt. Like in the dream that she woke up to find his lack. Now he comes. Will he come? Alas, no, no. So there we get her plaint. Every moment, it's now he comes, but that's not true. Will he come? Am I right? Is he coming? And the answer is, alas, no, no. Um, one last thing to say about Surrey is um, what, what follows in this book are the translations from the Aeneid. Um, from certain book of Virgil's Aeneas. Um, Sorry, translated, I think, two and a half books of the Aeneid. The Aeneid is 12 books long, Virgil's great epic poem. Um, these translations are really good. Um, they're not probably the best way to introduce yourself to the Aeneid, but maybe they are. But they are really good translations. But the really, really, really literary, historical, important thing that you need to know about these is that Sorry, this is the first time that any serious poet wrote blank verse in English. What Surrey is doing is introducing, in his translation of the Aeneid, he is introducing the kind of poetry that Shakespeare will write in most of his plays, and Shakespeare and, and um, Marlowe will also, and then the kind of poetry that Milton will write in Paradise Lost. Blank verse, that is to say, unrhymed iambic pentameter. Sorry did it because in Latin, Latin poetry doesn't rhyme, and Sorry wanted to give an English language sense of reading Virgil in Latin. It's unrhymed, that's revolutionary, and the revolution continued for 400 years, or the effects of that revolution continued for 400 years. Um, and, it's re and the reason that it continued is because Sari's translations are so good. Okay, have a good weekend, and um, Spencer for hire. <laughs>